All right, let's see if I can switch gears here and, and get back into things. We took a little bit of a, a detour, but not too terribly of a detour last Sunday. Uh, we've been talking about the contemplative way. We've been talking about Jesus' way. Uh, we've been talking about the transition from the first to second half of life, which we have talked about as all the same thing. We're not talking about different things here. Jesus' way is a contemplative way. The way to the transition to the second half of life is a contemplative way as well, and is also Jesus' way. The only way back to the Father, the only way back to the presence and connection and unity and the sense of love that is the Father, that is kingdom. Last week, since it was Thanksgiving, we kind of veered off into gratitude, but gratitude is how we know that we're in kingdom. So we really didn't stray too far, but we did come off the main story arc. So it was kind of a little episode there for a second. I want to get back onto it and see if we can finish. What I was trying to do was take a look at this journey that we are all on, this journey of the true self, and take a look at it in terms of the three major areas of life. You know, talking about the child, right? As we are born as children, we are unself-aware. We are not self-aware at all. We live in a state of simplicity. We live in a state of complete connection. You know, little Johnny still in that state of connection. Everything is one thing. Everything is now. That, that, the simplicity of that. But it is also self-aware. So when John, just like the rest of us, hits the age of reason, and we said metaphorically, eats from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil from the Eden story, then everything changes. Now we move into self-awareness. Now we move into the complexity of the world of the adult. Who would say that your life isn't complex right now, right? We're living in the complexity of the world of the adult, but we are now self-aware. And then when we move to the third stage of life, into the elder, into the, the, the wisdom sage, then we are moving back into the simplicity of what I want to call pan-awareness. It's just something I made up. What the heck, right? But it's where we transcend mere self-awareness and we become aware of everything around us as being connected, thus pan. You know, it's, it's an awareness of everything, how all of this interconnects, how God is present in everything. So from unawareness to self-awareness to pan-awareness, from the world of the child to the world of the adult to the world of the elder, this is the, the, the shape of the journey that we're taking. Now, the first, there's two major transitions here, of course, the one out of childhood and the one out of adulthood. But the first one is involuntary. We don't have any say in it. We just grow to a certain level, and if everything is firing the way it's supposed to, we will move into the age of reason. That's what the second creation story is all about. Remember, we talked about there are two creation stories in Genesis. The first one, God creates all of mankind at once, male and female and everybody at once at the end of six days of creation. It's the last thing he creates. It's the crowning achievement of his creation. In the second creation story, he creates just one man, Adam, out of the dust of the ground. And he does that before anything else is created on the earth. Then he creates the animals and the fish and everything, the plants and everything. And then he creates Eve, the second human being. And they are the ones then that eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And even though it's presented as a rebellion, as a disobedience, obviously it is what needs to happen in order for us to move into the image of God. The part of us that's created in the image of God is a part of us that can choose. And until we have self-awareness, we can't choose, which means we can't choose love. And love is why we're here, the connectedness of love. 
And so this second creation story is a story of that egoic separation. God tells Adam and Eve, if you eat from this tree on that day, you'll surely die. And they did. And we all do. We die to that oneness. We die to that sense of absolute connection, that awareness of everything is one. Now we can actually experience separation. Now we can experience loneliness. Now we can experience ourselves in competition with everyone else. And all of that takes place as we move into this involuntary transition in life. But the second transition into the second half of life is absolutely voluntary. It's intentional. It takes intense effort. It'll take everything that we have in order to move into this, either at midlife or because of some trauma in our lives. It's always something that is intense enough to break down that egoic container that we have spent the whole first half of our lives building up. Now we need to break it down. Not to destroy it, never to destroy the ego. We need that for as long as we're breathing here. That's our interface with the world. And not to destroy our self-awareness either. All that needs to continue. But to transcend, as we were talking, that self-awareness. To open it up so that we are connected and realize that we are connected with everything. This is what these two transitions look like. And for my money, there are three books in the Bible, in the Old Testament, that map this shape of the journey. The first one is Genesis. We just talked about it. The creation story is about the incarnation of the self, of the soul, into a physical human shape that can experience self-awareness, that can experience separation and disconnection in order to be able to learn what connection is all about. And the second is the book of Job. And Job really is a story of the second transition, this transition into a different awareness, always as a result of pain, always as a result of trauma, but moving into the acceptance of a new way of understanding life and accepting life on life's terms. And the third book is Ecclesiastes. And we talked about Ecclesiastes a couple of months ago. But in Ecclesiastes, I see the consummation the full realization of meaning and purpose in the second half of life. And not only just realizing it, and not even just accepting it, but actually making friends with it, and realizing how it can be enjoyed, even though it's so different than first half of life values. Now, how do we know if we are actually moving in this, into the second half of life, or if we have occupied the second half of life? if we have that kind of oneness and connection in our lives. I think there are two things that we can look at to kind of gauge ourselves. Are we really taking this journey? Are we really moving into the second half? And the first one is, can we accept life on life's terms? Can we accept life as it is? Scott Peck said life is difficult. Can you accept that? Or are you always kicking at it? It shouldn't be difficult. It should be something else. But can you accept that life is difficult? Can you accept the good, the bad, and the ugly of life? And then even as you do, can you live with a sense of hope and especially gratitude? Accepting that life is difficult and then gritting your teeth and trying to grin and bear it until you are beamed up or go under is not the exact idea that we're talking about here. Can you accept life on life's terms and still live with hope and gratitude? Can your life still be joyous, even though life is difficult? If those two things are present in your life, you have moved into a second half of life 
context, a second half of life perspective. Because in the second half, if, you know, these two things, accept life, live with hope and gratitude, contrast that with first half of life values, which is that we have to make life fit our needs. We have to make life fit the way that it should be. That's everything we're about in the first half of life, isn't it? We need to build our platform. We need to make life conform. And secondly, we experience life often with a sense of anxiety and a sense of entitlement. Because we have worked so hard, we are entitled to certain things. That's a first half of life perspective. And it's a wrenching transition to go from one to the other. It always involves pain. It always involves loss. It always involves a stripping away, a deconstructing of everything that we have so carefully built in the first half of our lives. And when we're talking first and second half, we're not talking chronologically. Easy for me to say. <laughs> chronologically, necessarily. You know, Normally, this is happening in the mid to late 30s and early 40s, but sometimes it's later. And if there are lots of traumatic events in a person's life, it can happen a lot earlier. I mean, look at someone like Anne Frank, Eddie Hilsom, you know, these, these young, young women, just girls. But because of Nazi Germany and the time that they were growing up, they experienced this transition so much earlier. So it's not necessarily chronological, but normally it does fall into the second half of life in terms of the 40s and the 50s. I think here, this is where Job can help us. We talked two weeks ago about the creation story and how those stories illustrate us moving into self-awareness, us moving into this sense of separation and disconnection that is the first half of life in the egoic consciousness. But Job can now help us to talk about the transition. Job is a really mysterious figure. I don't know how much time you've spent, Job. I mean, everybody sort of culturally knows about Job, right? The patience of Job, the sufferings of Job, all that sort of thing. But to really take a look at him more deeply, it, it, he's an interesting, fascinating character and mysterious because Job actually is not a Hebrew. He stands outside of Hebrew culture. He stands outside of, of the nation of Israel. In fact, often Job is considered the oldest book in the Bible because it is presenting a time in which Moses and the law had not existed yet. There is no mention of the law. There's no mention of Israel. He is said to come from the land of Uts, and it's going to be spelled U-Z, but it's pronounced Uts. And interestingly enough, you get this one for free. Um, there is some speculation that The Wizard of Oz was really a play on Uz or Uts, right? And so kind of cool, huh? Just to think about that, right? So he comes from this land of Uts, which nobody really knows where it is, but it's been identified with Edom. Edom, which is uh, what now is southwestern Jordan, or with Aram, which would be uh, northern Syria. So either one of those areas could be where he was from, but it was decidedly not Hebrew, and from a time apparently before Hebrew. And so he is not Hebrew. He comes from this other land. There's no law. There's no Israel. We don't know who he really is. In fact, some scholars have proposed that maybe there was an older story that's, that came from a tradition outside of Hebrews' tradition that the Hebrews then borrowed, brought in and embellished and added to to create the book that we know now. We don't know for sure. They tried to find it. They think they see these linguistic links with other Semitic tribes, but nobody knows for sure. But it's an interesting 
possibility. They couldn't find any of these existing documents or so. So what we do know about Job is that there are those characteristic multiple layers of traditions that we talked about two weeks ago, whether it's the multiple flood stories or the multiple creation stories, but all the books of the Bible except for the epistles were not written the way we think of writing a book, but they were compiled more the way a TV producer compiles a documentary. So there's all these threads, and we see those also in Job. Part of Job, most of Job is poetry, but there's prose at the beginning and the end. And the names of God tellingly change as well. The, the Hebrew national name of God, the Tetragrammaton, what yod heh vav heh which looks like R-Y-H-W-H, which is always going to be tr- printed in your English Bible as Lord, all lowercase, lower, upper, small, uppercase. So when you see that Lord, you know that what they're translating is what used to be maybe Yahweh or Yehovah. We don't know even how it was pronounced anymore. But that is contrasted with Elohim, which will be translated as God in your English text, which is an older name of God. And it transcends Hebrew and and Israel tradition anyway. Elohim and Eloah was used throughout the Levant, the area of the Eastern Mediterranean. And so... It looks like those sections may be older than the other sections that use Yahweh. We don't really know. But we do see those layers, which make it interesting. And here's why it becomes interesting. The first section, there's a frame story in Job, in prose. At the very beginning, two chapters and the last chapter are in prose. And they, all, they both use the name Yahweh. You know, we're going to see Lord in there, as opposed to Eloah or Elohim, which is plural. In that beginning and ending sections, it's possibly that, possible that they were li- added later. And the beginning section that's set up for the first two chapters is where we see the scene in heaven where God has the wager with Satan, with Satan and all of that. And the end is where everything gets restored to Job. So imagine if there was an older story that didn't contain those parts. Job is an upright man with all kinds of good stuff, and everything goes south. He doesn't know why. He gets no explanation. And at the end, nothing is restored to him. (laughs) You can understand why they wanted to add some parts to that story, right? Okay. But think about that original story. That's really mirroring life. We don't get answers to why the things happen to us. And we all know that sometimes things are not restored to us either. And so that original story was really much more true to life. But the expansion also gives us more to work with. And so we're going to treat just the text that we have. But I wanted to bring some of this up because it's interesting and it helps us to learn how to position Scripture. If you know how Scripture really was developed and how it was transmitted to us, it helps you in terms of being able to use it really well to guide our lives, which is what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to be an inspiration, and it's supposed to be a guide for us, but only if we are free to interpret it the way the Jews originally did, to be able to take it deeper than just the literal meaning itself. So we have these, in the middle we have this poetic discourse. Some scholars think maybe that was written even in the exilic period when Israel was, was in exile and Judah was in exile because now they're looking at Job as a metaphor for the entire nation. Why is a nation suffering this way? Why has this cataclysm hit us? And Job is the perfect metaphor for that and trying to understand how God is working in their lives and how they can still have that hope and that gratitude as they move forward out of the smoking crater that used to be 
their national culture. The theme of Job is really simple. Why do bad things happen to good people? Don't we all want to know that? And here's the, the, the most beautiful thing. People don't change. Technology changes, but people don't change. The questions that you want to ask most deeply in your life right now are the questions that they wanted answers to. Two to 4,000 years ago, 6,000 years ago, it doesn't matter. Why do bad things happen to good people? Where's God in all of that? How do we deal with the word for that is theodicy and philosophy. It is a problem of evil. If you have only one God, and this only applies to monotheistic religions, by the way, if you've got multiple gods, you can have good gods and bad gods, problem solved. But when you only have one God and you say he's all good and he's all powerful and yet evil exists, well, pick two out of three, but you can't have all three. You know, If God is not stopping the evil in this world, either he can't because he's not powerful enough or he's not good enough, but you've got to figure this out somehow. This is the problem of evil as we see it as theists who believe in one God. And this is what Job is addressing. Why do bad things happen to good evil, to good people? What is this issue? And as we said, we got this frame story. It's kind of like a sitcom where you set up a situation and that's the context in which everything happens. Those first two chapters set up a context. And then the middle of the story is, is just a poetic discourse. It's a conversation between Job and three of his friends. And then a fourth one enters and then a conversation between Job and God. And then the thing wraps up at the end but without any real answers. But that's the structure. This setup in chapters 1 and 2, the epilogue in chapters 42. Let's go ahead and read those first two chapters, or parts of those first two chapters, so we can get a sense of what's going on here and understand what's, what's going on with Job. This is not in your um, uh, handouts, but I'm sure Brandon's going to get it. Oh, Brandon, you don't know yet. Job 1, verse 1. Starting right at verse 1. Okay. There was a man in the land of Uts whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions were also 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yokes of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings, according to the number of them all. For Job said, Perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Okay, what's the sons of God business? You know, Okay, the, son, the sons of God are basically going to be angelic figures here, is the way they're using it. Um, it it's, it's, a, it's a term that would be used for these, these uh, spiritual beings that can actually be in God's presence, um, unlike human beings at this point. So there was a day when those angels, the sons of God, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Now, Hasatan, Satan, as we would pronounce it, Hasatan means the adversary. Ha is just the definite article. Satan means adversary. Now, we need to understand that Satan is very difficult. Satan is very dif different in Hebrew understanding than in ours. 
In Hebrew understanding, nothing can oppose God. Nothing, absolutely nothing can oppose God. There is no equal. God is called the one without opposite. And so Satan is understood basically as an employee of God. Satan is someone or something that furthers God's will because nothing can do anything else except further God's will. But what is happening here? If God creates mankind with the ability to choose, how will we know that that choice is real if we don't have an alternative? Right? Satan is the one who provides the alternative. He's the one who provides the difficulty, the challenges, the temptations that we can then choose between. But all of this is furthering God's will because this is why we're here. We're here to deal with the challenges of life. We're here to deal with the temptations. And Satan provides a very essential activity. Think of him like the drill sergeant in boot camp, you know? essential activity. If you are going to be able to move through and become a soldier and have a chance of surviving the battlefield, you need that adversity at the very beginning. Satan fills the same position. So it's different, right, than what we think of in this battle of good and evil. It's not a battle of good and evil. It's a continuance of God's will and plan and purpose. So Satan comes with all the sons of God, and the Lord says to Satan, from where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about the earth and walking around on it. Notice all the lords there are in that small uppercase, right? This is all Yahweh. This is all Y-H-W-H, Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan said to the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. Put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. Okay, there is the adversary, right? There's the alternate choice. There is the challenge. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. You can't touch him physically, but everything else. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. This is in the next few chapters or verses, I should say, is where Job loses everything. All his livestock is either taken or killed by raids or or natural occurrences. All of his servants are killed. And finally, his children are killed by a great wind that comes and levels their house when they're together, um, having their, their celebrations that they have on a regular basis. And at verse 20, Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshiped. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. That's pretty amazing right there, right? Continuing in chapter 2, Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin. 
Yes. All that a man has, he will give for his life. However, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and touch his flesh. He will curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your power. Only spare his life. Okay, so we're upping the ante here, right? Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And Job took a potsherd to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speak. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, they came, each one, from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and so far the Naamathite. And they made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and comfort him. And when they lifted up their eyes at a distance and did not recognize him, they raised their voices and wept. And each one of them tore his robe and they threw dust over their heads toward the sky. Then they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights with no one speaking a word to him, for they saw that his pain was very great. This is an interesting two chapters because nowhere in the Bible is God so thoroughly anthropomorphized, right? I mean, think of him in the way he's, he's presented here. He's just talking with Satan, you know? He's talking about things and, and trying to work things out and making deals and, and allowing things to happen. I mean, it's, it's such an interesting portrayal of God that we don't see elsewhere in the Bible. Even though he's anthropomorphized everywhere, made to, to have human traits, but this is where we really get into the nitty-gritty here. Now, obviously, this is not meant to be taken literally, is it? How could it be, right? It's more like a parable than it is meant to be a literal historic document. Because, let's be honest, if this were a literal depiction, then Job is more moral and more righteous than God is. And here's a problem, and the problem that people have had with Job for millennia who are trying to take the story literally. Like the book of Genesis, like the Eden story, it's asking the question, why are things the way they are? Why is there no free lunch? Why do we have to work so hard for our food? Why does a stone always roll back down the hill after I spent all day moving it up? Why do we have to bear our child with pain? Why do bad things happen to good people? These are the questions that are being asked by these peoples in the inspiration of their relationship with God. And they're writing them down. Obviously, the adversary, Hasatan, makes our choices real. He brings the difficulty, brings the challenges that we need in order to make this transition to the second half of life that we're talking about. Because without the pain, without the trauma, without something that is going to start to show the illusion that our egoic consciousness has built around us for the first half, we're never going to make the trip to the second half. We're not going to be able to graduate God is not plotting against Job, and he's certainly not plotting against us either. This is the way life works, and the way that it has to work in order for it to do its job with us, in order for us to be able to exercise our meaning and purpose here on earth in this life. Why are we here otherwise? 
And so often we are kicking against the very things that are instructing us and growing us up and allowing us to become everything that we're supposed to be here. Now, this story can be seen as an exaggeration, hyperbole, right? You know, but when you think about it in terms of God's sovereignty, it makes perfect sense. The Jews were so about God's sovereignty that he was unopposed, and everything that happened happened because God willed it. And so, therefore, if Job had boils on his head and on his feet, it's because God willed it and for no other reason than because Job had boils on his head and on his feet. That is the reasoning of the Jews. If it happened, it happened because God willed it. And we need to look through that and realize this isn't a description of God's nature. This is a description of the culture that produced the story about a relationship with God. And those are two different things. So this frame story, these two chapters set the context, set up a story that is now going to move into the next 39 chapters, which is this dialogue between Job and those three friends. And then eventually Elihu, who comes in at the very end, and eventually with God himself. Remember we talked about the difference between Hebrew and Greek ways of teaching. That Greek is authoritarian, that it's basically what I'm doing right now, telling you things. But it would be more than that. If I were telling you things that this is the absolute truth, this is what's right and you must believe it, that would be more of an authoritarian style of teaching. Whereas the Hebrews used what we call a dialectic. It's a conversation. It's a debate. It's allowing uh, opposing ideas to butt up against each other and let them play through in a dialogue to see what may come of that conversation. This is exactly what's happening in the 39 chapters between Job and each one of his three friends in three cycles of three, and then eventually with Elihu, who comes, and then eventually with God. It is a dialectic. It's this conversation. And what the friend's basic argument is, is all about retributive justice. It's all about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It's all about good things being rewarded, bad things being punished. That's the whole idea here. They're saying basically since Job is being punished, therefore he did something wrong. He is not the righteous man that he purports to be. He has sinned. Otherwise, he would be rewarded and not punished. This whole idea of retributive justice is is something that had taken hold in the Near East as a positive development from the blood feuds that were there before. But retributive justice is impersonally just trying to rebalance the scales when something has gotten out of balance. It's not about rehabilitating the person, the perpetrator, you know, It's not about rehabilitating, and it's certainly not about even deterring anything in the future. It's just saying there's something out of balance. We've got to even the scales. And we immediately, it's easy to understand, and we immediately apply that to God in unseen ways because that's what fairness speaks to us. If someone has done something wrong, then they should be punished. And if someone has done something right, then they should be rewarded. And if we don't see that in life, then we're crying out to God, why is this happening this way? Why do the wicked look like they're doing so well and the rest of us are getting stomped on over here? And how does this work out in the next life? These are all the questions. That is the basic argument of each one of Job's friends, that this is just about justice. And since you're getting punished, you did something wrong. Repent, admit that you did something wrong, let God forgive you, and then move on. But Job, over and over again, says he's innocent. 
He did nothing wrong. And they go back and forth and back and forth trying to figure out what could possibly be the truth here. But Job is not budging, no matter how much they pummel him. Now, you've often heard about the patience of Job, right? And that actually comes from James 5, uh, the book of James in the New Testament, where he talks about the patience of Job. Did Job have a lot of patience? Well, as it turns out, not so much. (laughs) You're going to love when you read Job, if you read his responses, not only to his friends, but to God and to Elihu and everybody else. He is angry. He's sarcastic. He's biting. He verbally attacks his friends. You know, you really got to like this guy, you know? (laughs) He just stands up for himself and he goes for it. And we can relate, right? We can relate to this, you know? But even in James, the word patience really means endurance. Now, it may mean endurance with cheerfulness, which you don't see in Job, but he did endure. So let's give him that at least. He endured, but he didn't do it cheerfully. And he didn't do it willingly either. And these cycles of conversations escalate over time until they're just throwing down with each other, very heated. And in between these bouts, God act, uh, Job actually addresses God as well. He's talking to his friends, but he starts addressing God. And he complains. And he criticizes God. And he questions God. He even berates God for the unjustified wrath against him. He depicts God as intrusive, unforgiving, and obsessed with destroying him. And then he moves to the macro, and he berates God for the way that he governs the world. Why do things happen this way? Why are the wicked doing so well, all sleek, fat, and happy? And why are the poor and the needy the ones that are still unseen in the margins of life? He just goes for it over and over again with God in these discourses. Let's, uh, let's read a little bit of it so you can get a flavor of it. And uh, again, this will not be in your books, uh, in your inserts, but Job 7, starting at verse 11, Brendan. This is Job directly addressing God. He says, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Am I the sea or the sea monster that you set a guard over me? If I say my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint, then you frighten me with dreams and terrify me by visions so that my soul would choose suffocation, death rather than my pains. I waste away. I will not live forever. Leave me alone, for my days are but a breath. What is man that you magnify him and that you are concerned about him, that you examine him every morning and try him every moment? Will you never turn your gaze away from me, nor let me alone until I swallow my spittle? Have I sinned? What have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you set me as your target, so that I am a burden to myself? Why then do you not pardon my transgressions and take away my iniquity? For now I will lie down in the dust, and you will seek me, but I will not be. Wow. (laughs) And then at Job 10, starting at verse 1, I loathe my own life. I will give full vent to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend with me. Is it right for you to indeed, indeed to oppress, to reject the labor of your hands, and to look favorably on the schemes of the wicked? Have you eyes of flesh 
Or do you see as a man sees? Are your days as the days of a mortal, or your years as a man's years, that you should seek for my guilt and search after my sin? According to your knowledge, I am indeed not guilty, yet there is no deliverance from your hand. Your hands fashioned and made me altogether, and would you destroy me? Okay, this is a guy who's fighting back with everything, with all the anguish that he's feeling in his soul. But isn't it so human? Isn't it understandable? Haven't you cried out? Haven't you criticized God? Haven't you yelled and screamed either into your pillow or in a room by yourself? Haven't we all done that? Of course we have. Haven't we tried to justify ourselves, even if it's just in our own minds, especially if we feel that we're not guilty? How about the outrage that we feel when things go bad, when we feel that we have done right? Where is God then? Where is God in all these macro issues when we see the injustices that are happening around us, the things that we can't even comprehend that people do to one another, either on the national stage, the world stage, or personally? Where is God then? Haven't we all cried out the way Job is crying out? Of course we have. Now, it's right at this point that this young man, Elihu, just shows up out of nowhere. All of a sudden, there he is at the beginning of the chapter. You know, He's a younger man, and so he has been listening, obviously, to this entire exchange of these older men going back and forth and back and forth. And finally, he gets to the point where he's just got to say something. He's been biting his tongue now for like 30 chapters, right? And so he's got to speak. And he is angry at everyone. Nobody is measuring up to where he thinks they should be. He's angry at Job for trying to justify himself. You know? And let's face it, nobody believes Job that he's not guilty, right? So he's angry at him for justifying himself, and he's angry at him for his complaints against God, of course. But he's also angry at the friends of Job for condemning him, but without giving him any answers that are satisfactory as far as Elihu is is concerned, right? So for five chapters, Elihu goes on, from chapter 32 to 37, And he's working now in his discourses to vindicate God. He's presenting them as this absolute mystery that humans can't know and therefore can't question. And he also is presenting God as a source for all wisdom. Wisdom comes from God, but it comes from God indirectly. It comes in dreams and it comes in visions, and it's up to us to be attuned in order to get this wisdom from God. So he goes on for five chapters. And at this point, God has had enough. He speaks from the whirlwind. And I love this, that he speaks from the whirlwind. Why would God speak from a whirlwind? Why is that little detail so important? But think about it, especially from an ancient culture. He's speaking from a source of power that they don't understand. He's he's speaking from a chaos that cannot be controlled, from this mystery, from this place that is at once frightening you know, but also awe-inspiring. Here is this God speaking from the whirlwind, and he speaks that way as if from the whirlwind. Let's take a look at uh, Job 38, starting at verse 1, and this is in your inserts if you want to take a look. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, and just listen to the gorgeous nature of this poetry. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. 
Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? Or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When in the morning stars, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, or who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth it went out from the womb, when I made a cloud its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, and I placed boundaries on it and set a bolt and doors, and I said, Thus far you shall come, but no farther, and here shall your proud waves stop. Wow. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be, wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal, and they stand forth like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld, and the up, uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you understood the expanse of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. It's just breathtaking poetry, breathtaking imagery. But notice this. God neither explains Job's suffering to him or defends his own justice not to mention his own motives. He doesn't even mention his motives. He doesn't enter into any kind of debate. There is no debate, right? This is very different than the scene with Satan, right? Where he is debating and going back and forth. But that was a different tradition, different name of God even, than we're seeing here in this tradition, in this thread. He doesn't respond to Job's oath or his insistence on his innocence or his righteousness, None of that even appears relevant to God as he lays out what he's laying out, which is basically what? If you boil it all down, I'm God, you're not, get over it. <laughs> this is the transcendent God that is being portrayed here as opposed to the anthropomorphized God that we saw in the frame story. Notice that he never addresses Job directly. How, he, how could he explain things to human beings? How could he explain the things that he knows to someone with a limited capacity? He's basically saying by not saying that life must be accepted as it is, accepted and not explained or understood. It's kind of like a joke. If you have to explain the joke, it's kind of over. You know, life is sort of the same way. You're either experiencing it and you're living it or you're not. But if you're looking for an explanation, you're not living. Job will either start to live or he won't. It's up to him. And then there is an exchange between God and Job, starting at verse at chapter 40, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder, that's him, contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken, and I will not answer, even twice, and I will add nothing more. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm and said, Now gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you, and you instruct me. 
Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? And in verse four, chapter 42, verse 1, Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear now, and I will speak. I will ask you, and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I retract, and I repent in dust and ashes. Now, we can accept this as mere submission on Job's part, but I think it's much more. Job is now at the point in his life where he can let go of the illusion of his own control. As Jesus would say, he's selling everything, letting it go so that he can follow. He is now becoming able to accept life on life's terms, beginning to trust everything as well. There are layers of scripture here, layers to the meaning or the interpretation of scripture. You think about it, Job is about one man who has suffered such amazing and horrible losses. He's in grief, and he's dealing with the idea of why, what this problem of evil is all about. How does he understand life as it's been changed so drastically? And of course, that can have ramifications and teachings to us as individuals. But on another level, he's also the metaphor for the entire nation of Israel and what they're going through as a people. And we can see Job that way as well as we look at our nation and we look at our situation. But even more deeply, this is the journey of the self, the unseen self, the true self, going through the transitions that must be negotiated if we're ever really going to enter into the fullness of our relationship with God and be able to fulfill our meaning and purpose here on earth. This is everything. Job is seeing life as it is. The suffering and the hardship, it's a necessary vehicle for the second half of life. This is why God doesn't intervene. He'll be intervening on the very thing that is growing us up, that is growing us back to him, into the oneness. Now you think about it, in that oneness, right? In, as a child, when we are experiencing that oneness, involuntarily, because we just haven't closed enough synapses to hit self-awareness. We're a part of everything, right? The uh, Zen call it the face we had before we were born. You know, we're still experiencing that. We haven't outgrown that yet. But at that stage in our lives, we can't distinguish ourself from non-self. We can't distinguish self at all from non-self. It's, it's a, it's a, a loss, like, like an Eden, of being able to understand how self even works. If we don't have a sense of self, if we don't have a sense of the other, then we really don't have compassion. We don't have love. We don't have empathy. We don't have any choice. We don't have the awareness of choice because there is no other. There is only us connected to everything. Love requires an object. Love requires a beloved why do we understand God as a trinity? Because love always requires an object, even within the Godhead itself, not to mention with us. 
So in that first stage of everything being one thing, we really aren't able to love. But as soon as we are incarnated into a physical body, into a physical being, it starts this ball rolling of us becoming self-aware to be able to make the distinction between us and another. But this comes at the price of the loss of the awareness of the oneness that we had. We experience that amnesia, if you, if you want to call it that, the uh, uh, egoic illusion of being just one thing as opposed to everything else. And that pain of separation and that trauma is what becomes the complexity of the adult experience. But the second half of life transition brings us back if we are willing to do the work that it takes, that we can then transcend self-awareness, move into that pan-awareness, but again, at the price of the pain and the trauma of the breaking down of the ego, the letting go of the illusion of power, which hurts, and we will be kicking and screaming at it the same way that Job did. But there's no other way to do this. Jesus said, this is the only way. I am that way. Look at me. Jesus went through exactly the same shape of the journey. If you analyze his life as presented in the Gospels, you'll see the same shape. There is no other way. Job is showing us the use of the control that he had as a righteous man as he understood righteousness. He was showing us the control of a law-abiding man as he understood abiding the law. That gave him the sense of control. That gave him a sense of entitlement even, that he was owed the good things and the rewards of God because this is the way life should be, and he was experiencing it as such. And that world was fine until it completely fell apart with no reason, no explanation. Everything that he knew how to do to be a righteous man, to be connected with God, was gone. And then we watch him kick and scream and fight. And finally, as he's confronted with this mystery from the whirlwind, when he has spent enough time dealing with the unknowns and the uncertainties of life and the mystery of life, he falls back into trust without explanation needed, and without understanding. This patience of Job had to pass through everything impatient to be able to finally exist as patience. We can't ex escape the shape of this journey. Not Job, not Jesus, not any of us. And to understand that is the first step toward us making friends with the difficulty of life because now it has purpose. Now we know why it's here. We don't question it as much anymore. Yeah, when it really hurts, we're going to question it no matter what. But we'll be able to recover quicker and move back into the stream of things. The shape of Job's journey is the shape of ours as well. We all need to go through the gauntlet. And then it, things will be restored, but not materially necessarily. Job in that last chapter is given double everything he had except for his children. He was given back exactly seven boys and three girls the way he had before. We know that that doesn't happen in real life. But what Jesus said does happen. When we set our treasure in heaven instead of on earth, then everything is restored as we can now understand it because we see 
the restoration, not in physical terms and material terms, but in the quality of our relationships and our ability to accept life on life's terms and live with hope and gratitude. And that changes everything as we move from first half values to second half values. And then finally, as we enter Ecclesiastes territory, to just accept is one thing, but to really make friends with it and to live it with that sense of hope and gratitude. Look at Ecclesiastes 3, starting at verse 9. What profit is there for the worker to which, what profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils? I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's own lifetime. Moreover, that every man, woman who eats and drinks sees good in all his or her labor. It is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it, and there is nothing to take away from it. For God has so worked that men should fear him. That which is, that which is has been already, and that which will be has already been, for God seeks what has passed by. Beyond acceptance, there is this consummation that we find in the preacher in Ecclesiastes this complete making friends, this complete comfort level with the meaninglessness of everything in life except what shares this moment with you. The only thing that means anything the preacher is saying is what is right now, to eat and drink and take pleasure in your labor, to take pleasure in your spouse and your children. That is where all meaning is. Everything else is vanity. And when we finally just allow ourselves to fall into that and become perfectly comfortable with that, we realize this moment is all we truly have. Then we can accept life on life's terms and live with hope and gratitude. And we are whole again even as we continue to live the complexities of our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the genius of those who wrote our scripture. Thank you for the quality of the relationship that they had with you that inspired their genius to write what we need to hear even now, thousands of years later. Help us to give ourselves the permission to be able to treat Scripture spiritually, to interpret it in a way that will help us to move towards you, to experience you, to move through the difficulties and the pain of life and see purpose and see the hope that others have taken this journey before us and therefore we know that we can take it as well even when it gets so difficult, it takes our breath away. So, Father, thank you for everything that you give us to be able to find our way home to you. We know that you're with us step by step. Help us to become more and more aware of that presence that will motivate us 
and help us to have the patience and endurance that it takes. Thank you for your love and your constancy, Lord. Never let us forget, we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.